Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The White House announced this week it will end the nation's coronavirus public health emergency in May. California is doing it even sooner, ending its COVID state of emergency at the end of this month. But the virus is still very much part of our lives, driving ongoing concerns about emerging variants, long COVID, and the vulnerabilities of the immune compromised. That's what you told KQED when we asked for your questions and reflections about the impact of COVID in 2023. We'll hear those and more after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The Biden administration is letting the coronavirus public health emergency expire in May, and California is ending its own COVID state of emergency earlier on February 28th. So what does it mean to live with COVID in 2023? What are you wondering about or most concerned about now as we prepare to enter the fourth year of the pandemic? KQED's digital news team has asked our online audiences who weighed in with a host of questions about what's on their mind and what they want to know. We'll address those this hour. Joining me is Carly Severn, Senior Engagement Editor with KQED News, who gathered the questions that are top of mind for you. Hey, Carly. Hey, Mina. And also with us is Dr. Peter Chin Hong to help answer those questions. Dr. Chin Hong is Infectious Disease Specialist at UCSF Medical Center. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Chin Hong. My pleasure as always, Mina. So I want to start with what it means that California and the nation are ending their COVID emergencies. There's been some worry from doctors and public health officials that people will interpret this as the pandemic is over. So if it's not that, how should we understand this phase? Well, I think uh, what it means is that we're landing uh, onto Earth and we're not, you know, we're kind of floating down, we're coming down the mountain. We're not quite at the level of the sea yet, uh, but I think it means that uh, there will probably be less support for people. And, uh, you know, in a fractured medical healthcare system, I'm worried that people are going to fall between the cracks. It'll be worse in some areas in the country versus others. In California, we are generally, generally decently protected as a people compared to other areas, but there will be changes for people. And the biggest worry that I have is that it will be confusing. So if somebody wants to go do a test, they just wouldn't know. They might just give up. Somebody thinks they might have COVID. They don't get that test, so they don't get access to Paxlovid. And then they'll be hospitalized, and those costs will be more than the prevention that they might have gotten. Somebody wants a vaccine, but they don't know what the copay would be from the insurance. Mm-hmm. They don't even know, um, you know, 
if it will be covered and maybe it will be covered. So I think the patchwork medical system that we have would be amplified on you know May 11th when this becomes no longer an official public health emergency. But like you said, Mina, it's certainly still very much around. And the worst thing that I want uh, to have happen is that people think that it means that it's all over until next winter. So do you think that this is not a wise move by the state or the feds? Well, I think uh, it is a wise move. It is the right time. Um, they were they were kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. Uh, I think politically, um, you know, I think there were there was a lot of movement in Congress to stop it tomorrow. But I think this was a way in which there could be planning. You know, May 11th is some time away. Health systems could be prepared. And remember, health systems have been getting reimbursed fully for all COVID care. So now, you know, it will again be amplified where some ambulance is going to bring somebody to a hospital. The hospital is going to say, what insurance does the person have? If the person has no no insurance or something that's not a PPO, they might say, why don't you go to that other hospital? And every delay in care in COVID uh, is, you know, potentially a higher risk for doing poorly and even dying. So I think these are all repercussions that we have to be prepared for. So the country needs to have this roadmap and preparations. Uh, and I think that May 11th date is okay for that um, and definitely better than tomorrow or next week. Hmm. Well, thanks for sharing what you're looking out for, Dr. Chin Hong, and what concerns you. Because, Carly, your team surveyed our audiences to find out what they needed to know about COVID in 2023, and you got a lot of responses. First, I'm just curious what you were finding were the categories of things that were rising to the top for people. Yeah, so the keynote, I would say, is confusion, just to echo what Dr. Chin Hong was saying. Um, in 2023, folks feel like the kind of clarity of answers just isn't there anymore. They're being kind of told to make their own decisions. And I think that's why we're still getting questions from our audience. We're saying, what do you need to know? Um, one thing that's coming up is how do I know how bad COVID is right now in my community? Because uh, previously in the pandemic, folks could like Google case rates and take a look of how many people were reported as having COVID. But now that people are doing so much at home rapid antigen testing and not reporting that to the state, the case counts kind of don't give an accurate view. And so folks are wondering, well, how do I know whether it's cool to go to that indoor birthday party in the restaurant today? Like, should I be doing that? Uh, folks have questions about wastewater, but they're not quite sure, like as, you know, a member of the public, how to look up wastewater in their community. So some practicalities like that. And also this indoor safety issue that Dr. Chinhan touched on. Folks just really want clear answers about, look, how safe is it in the grocery store? Do I need the mask in Trader Joe's? Can I go to that birthday party in the restaurant? And finding no clear answers, I think they're, they're coming to us and they're using their Google form. Yes, it's interesting. As more people are going out in the world, going into indoor spaces, um, and not always masking and so on. In fact, I think that's more rare than it is common. We're all sort of noticing this and wondering to ourselves how safe are these indoor spaces. People are going to more sporting events and parties and, of course, into schools and offices, taking much bigger risks than in previous years. And on that note, some of the questions that Carly received, Dr. Chin Hong, where things like, even though we're vaccinated, is it really safe to return to working in school classrooms? So this question is specific to schools. What would you say about how the schools are managing this? 
So I think whenever I get questions like this, I always break it down into really trying to prepare your immune system as much as possible for what, whatever virus weather there is outside. So if you are up to date on vaccines, um, I think it's pretty safe in general. It all, you know, it depends on who you are and who you live with, but in general, you're going to be safe. And when I say safe, I'm not saying safe from an infection, but I'm saying safe from getting really, really ill. And I think it's really important for all of us to really distinguish between a breakthrough infection or an infection and something that makes you, your body really react uh, dramatically and send you to the hospital or the ICU. And then with that setting, because if we have our goalposts as preventing all infections, I think we're setting ourselves up for failure. And the most important thing is that we do have a get-out-of-jail card, which is Paxlovid. So for people, even if you're vulnerable and you get ill or infected after getting vaccinated, uh, you can take Paxlovid to really reduce your risk further, not only of getting hospitalized, dying, but also of long COVID as well. So I think these are all the tools that people have. But there's a big coupling between testing and uh, how you do, because you have to get tested to know that you have it so you can get prescribed Paxlovid. Right. So stay up to date on your vaccination so that you are your best, uh, your strongest immune, you have the strongest immunity that you can. If you're at high risk of getting very sick and you want to take additional preventative measures, I imagine that's a conversation with your physician. Yes. So, um, you know, I think if you're high risk, um, I really would uh, recommend that people talk to their healthcare providers before so that they know what will happen if they do get infected. And we have so many things, again, not only Paxlovid, but Molupiravir, if you have a lot of drug interactions with Paxlovid. And, you you know, five days is the general time period from time of diagnosis to when the medicines would work most efficiently. But there is a drug called Remdesivir that we typically use for inpatients, but it's also approved for three doses as outpatients um, uh, within seven days uh, in case you kind of miss the five-day mark and you're worried about Paxlovid. And there are also other drugs coming down the pipeline. So I think these are all things that people need to prepare for because you want to know who's going to prescribe it to you. Do you have drug interactions? Are you going to get blocked at the Walgreens because they're worried that you may be on other medicines uh, that might interact with the drug. So I think having a Paxlovid plan really goes a long way. And to the issue of getting accurate information that Carly told us about, here were some of the questions that the audience wrote in with. In order to check for virus risk in public, I used to monitor case rates. But now with home tests and less reporting, the case rate number does not seem to be a reliable indicator. I've heard that the results of sewer monitoring are more reliable. Is that true? Another listener wrote, I've heard that case counts aren't as accurate anymore. Where can I find reliable data to determine my own risk level? Yeah, so that's a really tough question and something that uh, even my colleagues ask me all the time. And there's no great answer I think at the end of the day, what I look at really is, um, but it's really more of a distal outcome, meaning that uh, it's a late outcome, but deaths. And if you look at that metric, um, we're not doing great. You know, we're on, you know on average about 500 deaths a day in the country, um, and I think I, I worry that um, you know there is the people who are 
very much at risk uh, and the people, the vast majority are not at risk for serious disease. But, you know, we get we're becoming very numb to zeros and numbers. Uh, but that's a number that's a little frightening to me. But more proximally, uh, you can look at certainly wastewater. But I know it's hard for people to uh, interpret what a that number means. But to me, it's uh, more the shape of the graph and the way the the curves are moving. That because you know kind of what your baseline is, and generally the wastewater shows that the numbers are moving in the right direction. Um, and um, but the deaths are still a little bit troublesome to me. Yeah. So when we do look at the state publishing tracking data, the death metric is the strongest, and it sounds like the biggest value of the case rate data is the trend. Yes, the slope of the graph. Um, and of course, we can look at hospitalizations too, which is kind of an in between. Um, but of course, those hospitalizations account for people who are incidental COVID as as well as those who are really sick with COVID. Um, but I also look at the trend of that as well. And if you look at that metric, again, it's there's very variation in region. Um, you know, San Francisco is doing generally decently because, um, you know, at UCSF, we have fewer than 20 people, even with incidental COVID right now. Um, and, you know, back in January of 2022, we had 150, 160. So, you know, that that is some cause for, you know, some some uh, comfort on some level. Hmm. We're talking with Dr. Peter Chin Hong, infectious disease specialist at UCSF, and Carly Severn, senior engagement editor at KQED News. We're hearing from you, our listeners, about what you're thinking about in 2023 when it comes to COVID and its threat. What's your reaction to the federal and state government saying COVID's no longer an emergency? Do you feel relieved? Or perhaps you feel forgotten because COVID still determines a lot about how you live. You can email forum at kqed.org or post your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite- Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's what we're talking about tomorrow, comic strips, specifically the history and power of LGBTQ comics that's being highlighted by a new PBS documentary called No Straight Lines, all about what it means to be able to draw your own story. Today, we're hearing about what concerns you most about COVID as we enter the fourth year of the pandemic. KQED's digital news team asked our audiences 
that very thing. And you weighed in with a host of questions that we're addressing this hour. Carly Severn is Senior Engagement Editor for KQED News, and Dr. Peter Chin Hong is Infectious Disease Specialist at UCSF Medical Center. Join the conversation by calling 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also email us, forum at kqed.org, or post your thoughts on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. We're at KQED Forum. Carly, on that KQED digital forum, you left space to allow people to tell us just anything they want to share about how COVID has affected their lives. I'm curious what kind of responses you got from people. Yeah, because we knew there was a difference between having a, a very clear-cut question to ask versus kind of just wanting to share how you feel. And so we gave people the opportunity to do that, and they really did. And one of the the keynotes that was really coming over was how isolating it feels to be kind of still living a different pandemic to other people, to feel like other folks are dropping restrictions, dropping the mask literally, but you still need to keep up your precautions. So that was a lot of comments that we got, just how how lonely that felt. Um, also, when you're trying to keep yourself safe, but maybe a family member who might be immunocompromised having to take all those extra steps just to make sure that you're not bringing the risk of infection in. And it, how navigating that right now in 2023 feels like kind of being on your own little island and it doesn't feel good. So I was really quite struck with how many comments we had along those lines of how isolating this feels. Yeah, this one struck me. I moved to a new city in order to provide full-time help with a relative's baby. It has been a socially very thin time. Staying isolated to keep the baby's bubble COVID-free has made it difficult to get acquainted. The fear of COVID was and is exhausting. Dr. Peter Chenhong, you brought up the fact that we are seeing in January in the U.S. 500 people on average dying every day. In California, it's an average of nearly 40 people a day here. And we also did see people upset about COVID deaths, saying, will there ever be a time when COVID is completely gone? Should we get used to the idea that it's here to stay forever in some form? Why don't people care about the 300 plus Americans still dying every day that that was the stat prior to January? Do you have any thoughts on this? Is this a death rate that we are going to need to accept because it seems we have come to accept it. I think part of the acceptance, frankly, Mina, is that we're all so tired and, um, you know, we're declaring psychological victory because we want it to be over. And maybe 500 is not as bad as 2,000 or, uh, you know, it's like, you know, the population of the deaths of 9-11 happening every day in those days. But 500 is still a lot. It's still, again... You know, when I calculated it uh, on my little uh, iPhone right now, it's 182,500 deaths a year, which is way more than a typical flu season, which is 35,000 uh, in a typical flu season. So again, it's troublesome to me and it's depressing to me um, because many of these deaths are preventable. Uh, only 40% of uh, those over 65 have gotten a booster. So we have that technology uh, in one study uh, in the VA population, of those eligible to get Paxlovid, only 20% of those actually uh, went out and, and were prescribed Paxlovid. So again, this is all leading to this death. We focused on 
unvaccinated as a risk factor, but we're seeing more and more vaccinated seniors. But back in December of 2020, when we rushed to have our grandparents and parents vaccinated, but it seemed that we've forgotten about them uh, for that booster. And I was talking to my mo- my own mom who lives in New York, and she hadn't gotten a booster yet. And I was like, why? I've been telling you to get a booster all this time. And she's like, well, all my friends said, as long as you're vaccinated, I'm fine. And I'm like, no, you definitely need to get the booster. Every single database we look at uh, shows at risk in those over 65 who are vaccinated but not boosted. And it's really a tragedy, both from the fact that we've become numb to zeros. And secondly, that we have the tools. It's for free right now. And people are not taking advantage of it. Mm. Well, Kim has a related question to your point about not everyone getting Paxlovid. Kim writes, I tested positive for COVID with an in-home test in late November following a Thanksgiving get-together. I notified Kaiser because I wanted Paxlovid, but Kaiser only issues Paxlovid to certain patients. How is this possible? Well, I think there's a lot of confusion uh, about Paxlovid, and certainly the biggest bang for the buck uh, in the studies is those who are unvaccinated and have at least one risk factor for serious disease including comorbidities. So, uh, but even in that population, uh, people are not getting it. So there's confusion in the community, not only amongst the people, but amongst the people who are prescribing Paxlovid. Uh, certainly um, with President Biden, uh, you know, and um, Tony Fauci getting rebound uh, from after taking Paxlovid, that uh, made people more uncertain as to whether or not they would have any benefit. But the more we study it, it's very, very clear that there is a lot of benefit, um, but maybe not to the whole population. There's one study showing that for healthy people uh, under the age of 50, that they may not benefit as much from Paxlovid as the wash. But I think California, and I remember Tomas Aragon uh, making a statement a, a couple months ago He's like in California, you know, just assume you're eligible for Paxlovid. Have that conversation. Um, If you're being blocked, maybe ask someone else. uh, Because, again, it's better to have someone discuss it with you than for you to make your own decision. Hey, maybe I will be blocked if I ask because a whole lot of people are eligible and would benefit from this. And I'm really coming back to that staggering figure of 500 people a day still dying in the United States. Well, Daniel writes, I'm not pleased with ending the national emergency. People will stop using mitigation, such as masking and social distancing. COVID will become business as usual. We're not at a point where we can pretend there's nothing wrong anymore. Carly, you heard from a lot of people who are immune compromised or live with someone who is. What was sort of the the tenor? What were some of the things that were really bubbling up among those responses? One thing I really noticed was um, how folks were saying it feels difficult to go back knowing now how I've been treated. Like we saw that kind of comment a lot. I would love to read just one comment we had because I thought it was so powerful. As a person affected by cancer, I'm saddened by the lack of respect for vulnerable people like me by the rest of the community. Wearing a mask indoors is not too much to ask. I... I already suffer from anxiety due to my oncological condition. COVID has added another layer of danger and fear to my life. And they talk about, you know, going to the grocery store and no one's wearing masks, having to be on BART because their employer is telling them that they have to be back in the office. And that feeling that no one really cares about them. That's a a note that is coming up again and again in these comments. And it's really tough to read. 
Yeah, there was another one. I have a severely immune-compromised husband, and we have lived very cautiously since the start of COVID. He has CVID and ITP, and getting COVID, especially before the vaccine was available, could have been deadly for him. But we live in a state that is anti-restrictions or COVID protocols. We just want to understand what our risks are. We do understand the whole thing about transmission rates when they're high, etc., but it sure would be nice to know for sure whether we could be in congregate settings and feel safe. This is somebody who lives out of state. Another person writes, as an immunocompromised person with multiple health conditions, I am wondering when and how I can return to living in a way that is even close to how I navigated the world pre-pandemic. I had to be somewhat cautious even then. Do you hear this a lot, Dr. Chin Hong? And what do you say to people living with chronic conditions that make them particularly vulnerable to COVID infection? At the same time, I'm also hearing a lot about this undercurrent of isolation in what they're saying. And I wonder what you say to people who are experiencing COVID-related isolation in 2023 when it feels like so many are out in the world. So first, Mina, I would like to encourage everyone who's listening to be empathic to people out and about. And I know it's easy to think, wow, that person is such taking this with such overkill. They're double masking and COVID is really not much of a threat anymore. But remember, everyone you see has a very different circumstance. It could be that they're trying to protect someone at home. It could be that they're trying to go to someone's wedding so they really can't afford to get infected at this moment. Everyone has their reasons. And, you know, just like we were empathic to each other uh, early on in the pandemic, I think we need to return to that empathy and compassion. Uh, It's easy to say, but really hard to do when, you know, you're at the grocery store and you can't hear what the cashier is saying because she's behind a mask. But remember, people in the service industry are seeing hundreds of people every day, and they really need to protect themselves from their family too, even though it might be an infection and not serious disease because uh, they can't afford to stay home from work. So everyone has their own circumstance, so remember to be empathic. The second point I would say is that not all immune-compromised states are the same. Uh, I know that we lump them into one box, but I think of it as a score of like, one to 100, and most people are like, might be 10 out of 100 in terms of how um, worried I am for them getting seriously ill. And many people with diabetes, for example, uh, are really well protected if you're up to date on the vaccines. But I think we've lumped everyone in this category. It's not the same as someone who, say, got in a lung transplant last week. Uh, they're much more at risk or uh, uh, on chemotherapy that brings on their white blood cells. So having a, a a good conversation with a healthcare provider can help stage what where you are on that spectrum of immune compromise. Because I've heard time and time of people again worried um, and being fearful, um, even though they may not be very very immune compromised. Um, and thirdly, I would say that. Um, you know, there are sometimes things we can do in clinic to help reassure people. For example, um, although not validated, uh, some clinics, particularly immune-compromised clinics, transplant clinics, can measure your antibody response to the vaccines. That might give people some sort of um, comfort that they do have some protection as opposed to zero protection. Uh, And that might be helpful in the way you think about protecting yourselves and your family and again, not to sound like a broken record, 
there is that get out of jail card. So having that Paxlovid plan, even though a lot of immune compromised people may be on drugs that interact with Paxlovid, uh, there are ways out of that with adjustment to your drugs. And even if that doesn't happen, there are alternatives to Paxlovid to keep you safe, even if you are infected. And knowledge is power. So if you know about this, I think you can navigate the world a little bit more confidently. Let me go to caller Alan next. Hi, Alan, you're on. Hi, Uh, thanks for uh, taking my call. Um, I have kind of a complicated personal situation, and I'm trying to figure out how to navigate all this. Um, I've recently had a a stroke and... uh, uh, pulmonary embolisms. So there's and um, and I've had uh, open heart surgery. <laughs> I'm a mess. Um, and uh, so uh, so there are there are a number of risks that are involved there. Um, I, I have I'm double vaxxed plus the one booster, and I'm shy the last booster. Uh, then along came all the variants, and I'm like um, I've heard various things about the variants. Um, one of which is it's it's much less. Uh, uh, there is less morbidity, but it's it's much more. What's the word I'm looking for? Transmissible. The replication rate's much higher. Mm-hmm. The replication rate is much higher. Yeah. So there's there's a danger of it running out of control, especially for someone who doesn't have a response. So the the problem though for me is that every time I've taken the three the, the three vaccines so far, each one has knocked me more and more and more on my butt. It's like huh. really strong. The last one. So I'm like really concerned about taking this fourth one. Um, is there any way? To, um, so I'm trying to mitigate risks and problems and things like that. What I'm what I what I'm wondering is: is there a way of getting the vaccine just for the variants? If if mm. my if my uh, you mean uh, to try to limit the impact that it's having on Alan, Doctor Chin Hong, your thoughts? Yeah. So I mean, the new bivalent booster is a booster that's targeted to. BA4 and BA5, which is kind of in the Omicron family. So it is, you know, uh, tailored to these variants, not the specific uh, ones that are circulating right now, but, you know, close relatives. Um, Studies have shown from the CDC and others that they do provide better uh, protection, uh, even against um, uh, some of the circulating variants like XBB compared to the older vaccine. So um, I would say uh, you are getting more benefit uh, from the current um, updated booster, even though it's not as much as we expected. But again, it's going to really prevent that the the bad outcomes. And in terms of uh, uh, your other um, concerns, Alan, and first of all, I'm sorry that you're navigating such a difficult, uh, you know, medical uh, situation. And and I hope you get well soon. Is that um, there is another vaccine for people who are worried about the previous reactions or just feeling terrible after uh, mRNA vaccines. And Novavax has been approved as a booster. So it's an option. For example, I had a family member who had um, a really difficult uh, cardiac complication, um, uh, you know, myocarditis after um, an mRNA booster. And um, what I, and he was over 65. And I said, and he was really nervous about getting that booster again with the uh, bivalent boosters. So I said, you know, it's really pr- important for you to be protected with a reminder, regardless of what that reminder is. So why don't you try Novavax? And he went ahead and got Novavax, tolerated it really well. And I think that's an important option for people as well. Well, Catherine writes, my 12-year-old has stage one chronic kidney disease. The early variants of COVID were shown to impact the organs. So we are still very careful. 
Will there be updated research soon on how much the newer variants impact the organs? Well, right now, like Alan uh, pointed out, the new variants luckily uh, stick around in the throat more. They don't enter the body as much. And that's why, independent of vaccines and Paxlovid, we're generally seeing fewer uh, people come up with chronic conditions or long COVID with these new crop of variants compared to the older variants. It doesn't mean people aren't, but it's a lower risk. And it speaks to the fact that the virus tends to be getting in the body less and therefore affecting the kidneys less. But you can mitigate the risk. And of course, hopefully your daughter has been vaccinated um, because what happens in that vaccination setting is that even if the virus opens the door and enters your bloodstream and then goes to the kidneys, those T cells and B cells are going to kick the virus out. So it's going to stick around in the throat and not enter, affect other organs as much. Uh, Well, Kirsten wants to know, can Dr. Chinong comment on the new FDA rule that a positive PCR test will no longer be required for a Paxlovid prescription? Yeah, so you don't need a positive PCR test. Um, You certainly, uh, you know, you can get an antigen test at home. Um, And, you know, in general, if, if, uh, if people have a strong suspicion of, I mean, as a medical professional, I would say that you kind of want to make sure you have COVID rather than going through the whole five days of Paxlovid because it's, again, three pills twice a day. You want to make sure you have COVID, but you don't need a PCR to do it. Uh, a rapid antigen test will do it. But I would definitely want to make sure I was positive before going through those five days. We're hearing from you, our listeners, what questions are still top of mind for you as we enter the fourth year of the pandemic. And even as the state and federal governments prepare to end their COVID states of emergency, 866-733-6786 is the number to call. You can email forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. Also, just a note, our KQED COVID coverage and a Google form for questions is at kqed.org slash COVID guides. Stay with us. We'll have more after the break with Dr. Peter Chin Hong, infectious disease specialist at UCSF Medical Center, and Carly Severn, senior engagement editor for KQED News. I'm Mina Kim. Stay with us. This is Forum. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're taking your questions about COVID in 2023 as California prepares to lift its COVID state of emergency at the end of this month. We're talking with Dr. Peter Chin Hong, infectious disease specialist at UCSF Medical Center, Carly Severn, senior engagement editor for KQED News, who's been gathering your thoughts and reflections about the pandemic over the course of these few years, and especially what's top of mind for you now. The listener writes, to Carly and to the KQD Digital News team, my daughter left UCLA and is back at home due to long COVID. I had to quit my job to help her baby brother with Zoom kindergarten. Now I'm afraid to go back to work because I have risk factors associated with long COVID, but my savings are running dry. Joining me now is Dr. Erica Pond, California State Epidemiologist and Deputy Director for the Center for Infectious Diseases at the California Department of Public Health. Dr. Pond, really glad to have you. Always nice to be here. Thank you, Mina. And there are a lot of people who are going through a lot, people with long COVID, people who are immune compromised, and people who are concerned about the state ending its COVID-19 state of emergency on February 28th. First, can you just tell us what's going to change on that day? What are the biggest changes that people will notice? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think, you know, the good news about this is that we've been thinking about and planning for this for many, many months. Um, People may remember we kind of issued our state, uh, what we called our smarter plan, you know, last uh, spring, actually. Um, And ever since then, we've been really working on, you know, how do we continue to adopt and and manage this virus, SARS-CoV-2, in our lives. So we have a lot of tools now to really help us. You know, we have vaccination, um, these updated boosters. We now have um, much easier treatment that really helps kind of decrease the impact of of COVID on our lives. So a lot of that, um, you know, we have now. I think some of the uh, kind of governmental resources are going to transition to like more traditional health care. So, you know, it it it's kind of trying to normalize this as another part of the, you know, infectious diseases that we see in our in our community and in our healthcare setting. But it will basically the governor will not have the authority to issue orders and so on uh, without the legislature, county health officials who are able to impose health ordinances and so on will need to seek the approval of elected officials. So things will move a little bit slower. Also, the head of the California Hospital Association told the New York Times that they felt February is a terrible time to end the public health emergency because they're actually seeing that hospitals are still beyond capacity, in part because of not just COVID, but pent up demand for surgery and other treatments that people delayed over the years. What is your response to that? Uh, a couple of thoughts. And one thing I, I actually want to clarify as a prior local health officer as well, local health officers have local authority and it are not dependent on elected officials for that authority. So, you know, if there are other, you know, public health emergencies, locals can issue health officer orders and sometimes do it on a much smaller scale. For example, an individual uh, who might need isolation or quarantine for um, you know, multi-drug resistant tuberculosis is an example that's been used in the past. Uh, I think as far as the hospital capacity, uh, you know, I think that is an ongoing healthcare system challenge. And certainly, uh, as we've seen changes in our healthcare system uh, and, and staffing and workforce shortages over time, uh, I think that's just something that we're collectively uh 
our challenge with, but but it is really clear that the burden of COVID specifically in the hospitals right now is decreasing and is a very small proportion at this point of hospital census. Um, but I think what we're now challenged with is just, um, you know, the burnout uh, and the workforce shortages that we're seeing, not only in the healthcare setting, but elsewhere. And this is definitely, um, and then at the pent-up demand, it, it's sort of a double whammy in that sense. But I think the states of emergency and some of those federal, I mean, sorry, state regulations that we had or, or um, exemptions we had to things are not are not going to necessarily address that problem. I think these are kind of longer standing problems we need to, to work on as a healthcare system. Hmm. Well, let me go to caller Matt in Sausalito. Hi, Matt, you're on. Oh, yeah, good morning. Yeah, I just had a quick question about, uh, I've had all the shots, uh, and the last one was in the first part of September. So it's been about five months out. I'm just curious as to what I should we should expect for somebody you know over sixty for next year for 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 an additional booster or whatever mm. or what's the plan for people who you know yeah thanks Matt in my situation Dr. Yeah, Pond no we're getting a lot of questions similar to Matt KQED's digital team also did as well with regard to vaccines when people will get the next one, but also how the state is thinking about what kind of vaccine regimen we could see in the future. Sure. And there was a federal meeting just last week um, of the FDA's advisory committee to look at this question. And uh, they have started that discussion. And and one of the main things they decided was more about um, many people have heard about this updated booster and that it has two strains rather than one. So moving forward, the recommendation is to make all the doses um, that that newer kind of two strains. And then I think they're talking a lot about the timelines for, um, you know, is this a fall uh, sort of booster or update like the flu vaccine? So I think there's more to come for the federal recommendations and we'll continue to closely monitor that. Mm. But it is looking more and more like uh, you know, it'll be similar to a flu vaccine sort of update annually. So based on what the feds say, the state will set booster schedules? Yes. I, you know, we are also, I think, just along those lines, uh, you know, for other vaccines as well, whether it's flu or, you know, uh, shingles vaccine, we follow the recommendations of the CDC and the FDA and have historically. And so we'll continue to monitor those. There's, you know, a couple of different advisory committees to the FDA and CDC, and then the FDA and CDC themselves issue, um, you know, authorizations and or recommendations. And we definitely typically follow those and um, actually have not varied from those over the course of the pandemic. Noel tweets, how come we never hear about updating ventilation systems? How come paid sick leave proposals dropped? All the Biden administration wants is for the pandemic to be over and for Biden to take his victory lap. We're not all in this together. Carly, did you hear a lot of that among the audiences you surveyed? A lot of disbelief that there weren't more mitigation measures being put in, yes. And this also kind of aligns with something I've been seeing on social media recently. Um, you'll recall uh, at Davos, when folks gathered, there were these photos of the, the filters, the air filters that were in every single room that people were, were meeting in at Davos. And a lot of people were saying, well, why, why don't I have this in my office? Why, why doesn't my kid have this filtration device in their school? And I think it really got people thinking and getting quite emotional and angry about the lack of care that they're feeling from their authority figures. So yes, seeing this a lot from folks. In terms of ventilation systems or paid sick leave proposals, those kind of feel like state level things, Dr. Pond. I'm wondering um, what kinds of conversations are happening at the state level around that? 
and, and not just for people, you know, who need paid sick leave for a COVID infection, but people with long COVID, too. Sure. I think uh, on both levels, there's a lot of ongoing conversations. Um, uh, and, and just to speak to indoor air quality for a moment, it's it's definitely an important thing that can uh, be uh, a great gain and, and uh, priority that's elevated after this pandemic. So there is an indoor air quality task force and it was really looking at uh, uh, better coordination um, and, and looking at those long-term investments. And that's going to help us for, you know, not only COVID and other respiratory diseases, but, you know, as we have uh, poor air quality due to wildfires or other air quality issues. So there are a lot of efforts going on with that. Um, I think I admittedly am less uh, up to speed on the latest conversations about sick leave, but um, I hope in general too, that people are really uh, have that message um, to really try stay home when, when ill to not spread disease to others. And um, thankfully because of a lot of technology and other things, and not everyone has that choice, of course, but that there are more options to try to do some work remotely. Well, this is Snow writes, I'm disappointed about how accepting of COVID so many people seem to be. I rarely see people wearing masks or keeping six feet away from people they do not know when standing in lines. When I am waiting in line at my local pharmacy or grocery, I choose to explain to people that I'm wearing my mask and trying to stay away from them because I have leukemia and my body cannot make antibodies against any disease, COVID, and others. Karen writes, I've heard that there's a newer strain that the current antiviral meds don't work as well on. Is that true? Would they still help protect against long COVID? And what's the best source to follow daily death totals? I think we talked about this a little bit. Worldometer shows more like 200 to 300 Americans per day. There's a few questions there, but uh, the first one first, Dr. Peter Chin Hong, in terms of um, the newer strains, the current antiviral meds not working as well against them? So the silver lining, Mina, is that uh, all of the meds, Paxlovid, Molnupiravir, Remdesivir, they work on the virus factory and they prevent the factory from making more virus. So it doesn't matter what the spike protein looks like. So they are spike protein independent. So you can give me the scariest variant on Earth and those drugs are still working and they are still going to work. So that's a big takeaway point for everyone in the audience to know. In that second part, Carly, in terms of the best source to follow daily death totals, I know you are our data person. Uh, where do you turn to? Uh, there's several trackers online. I believe the New York Times has a pretty robust one. But as we've seen with a lot of this stuff, uh, a great deal was online in 2020 and then continued into 2021. And folks might find that the, the sources of information that they have been turning to over the last few years have kind of ebbed away. And so they might not be able to find this stuff online anymore. Well, uh, Dr. Pond, as a pediatrician, we're actually getting some questions that you might be able to help us out with related to pregnancy. Ravi writes, what are considerations if you're pregnant, trying to get pregnant or thinking about pregnancy? How should a pregnant woman stay safe? What are the current risks if you're boosted? Uh, so for pregnancy, I think one of the most important things is to get vaccinated, actually, and be up to date on your COVID-19 and other vaccinations. So flu um, and COVID-19 and many other diseases can be more severe in pregnancy. And the great thing about vaccinations is uh, many of them actually not only help benefit the pregnant woman, but also the, the fetus and infant. And we have more and more studies evolving around that for whooping cough, flu, um, that those antibodies can actually be um, transmitted to the infant and help protect them in those early months before they can develop their own antibodies and when they're too young to get vaccinated. Uh, and 
like sort of some of the other comments about, um, you know, if you have various reasons for um, your immune system or medical problems, you can still wear a well-fitted, you know, well-filtered mask uh, in settings where you are either crowded indoor settings or other places where you're concerned you could be exposed. We're talking with state epidemiologist Dr. Erica Pond, Deputy Director for the Center for Infectious Diseases at the State Department of Public Health. Also, Dr. Peter Chin Hong of UCSF with a, is with us, and Carly Severn of KQED. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Dr. Pond, the last time we had you on, uh, public health officials were talking about the the potential triple-demic and its severe impact, flu, RSV, and COVID, that would disproportionately affect kids as well as the elderly. How is the state assessing that risk now? Just curious as we start February. Sure. We continue to, and actually uh, uh, sort of to answer one of the other questions too, you know, public health is always uh, tracking and monitoring um, respiratory surveillance and certainly COVID-19, and we'll continue to monitor. Certainly the cadence may decrease or, you know, with flu, we monitor more closely during flu season. Um, we're very confident at this point that flu and RSV have decreased. We're starting to see some other viruses circulate, which is, again, typical. And there are dozens of viruses that, you know, don't even get tested for. But I think the other encouraging thing, um, and, and to the point about death, is when we've looked at combined respiratory deaths this past winter, they're actually not higher in the state of California uh, then, for example, the really bad flu season in 2017-2018 uh, of deaths from flu. So that is encouraging. I think, again, all the uh, vaccinations and treatment um, and tools we have gained over the pandemic have really decreased the impact of this virus. Um, and we, again, have gotten over this winter surge that we saw with the early flu and RSV seasons. Leslie writes, please talk about testing. The testing centers are shutting down. Yes, we're certainly hearing that. Um, in different local jurisdictions with the state emergency declaration going away. Dr. Pond, what can you tell the listener about their concern about testing centers going away? Sure. I think a lot of that is because tests are so much easier to get now. Uh, so you can get over-the-counter tests. They have thankfully gotten um, less and less expensive. And um, you know, that is, I think, a lot of things as far as funding of these things over time is going to evolve. And um, we're waiting to see more about that is one of the impacts of the end of these emergencies is uh, government funded, especially for um, people who are insured. We always look at things like, um, for example, with flu vaccine during the winter as well, we do have some allocations for kind of un and underinsured high risk individuals. Um, so over time, that may still be uh, available, but I think really transitioning all of these sort of emergency-funded, government-funded healthcare resources are going to be transitioning to um, healthcare insurers and and the private insurance systems. But again, it's really so much easier now to get uh, over-the-counter tests, um, and and so the, the the community sites will be changing, but getting over-the-counter tests should still remain easy. Well, this person wrote to KQED's digital team, I had COVID twice in one year, early January and late December 2022. Fortunately, I didn't I don't I didn't get acutely ill and have not been at risk of respiratory distress or hospitalization. However, each time recovery was long. It took about a month before I was able to get through a regular workday. Brain fog, particularly word word recall challenges, persisted through the year in between. If COVID becomes a fact of life like the annual flu season, it is possible that I'm at risk of losing a month of productivity out of each year. Dr. Chanel, what's the latest medical understanding of long COVID? How prevalent is what this person is describing? Yeah, so every time I hear a story about people having uh 
post-infectious symptoms. I always, um, you know, get a more a little bit more gray in my hair, and and that's because it is sort of the elephant in the room. It is going to be the legacy of COVID for for our lifetime, actually, and uh, we have very little understanding still of therapeutic options, but we're getting more and more understanding about who gets it and um, how common it is. So I think one of the silver lining studies, I think that came out in the last month or so, shows that most people with chronic symptoms after COVID um, get better within a year, and that study came from Israel. So, But the, even if you think of that way, that still leaves a few million Americans who still have symptoms after a year. But for the listener who called in, um, it is... Um, you know, I think it is common for people to have symptoms, even though it's not called long COVID officially. The WHO says three months of, at least three months of continued symptoms after onset. CDC says two months, but most people actually will have symptoms and will get better within a month, but it's not going to be like a regular virus. And I think that's the other reason why we just, you know, we don't want to be fearful of the virus but you certainly don't want to run and intentionally put your way your, yourself in the path of a lot of virus risk. So that's kind of what we know. We know that um, long COVID could be due to viral persistence or uh, auto antibodies being produced or even uh, effects on the microbiome um, or reactivation of other viruses. There's probably a, a hodgepodge of different things. Uh, and we're still in the infancy of therapeutic options. But for people listening, if you think you have long COVID, um, recovercovid.org, you can Google it, is a good uh, place to start for finding a support group and being enrolled in a study as we uh, try to understand more, not only uh, what we can do about it, but um, you know, all of the impact uh, that it's having, it's having on this population. Yeah, it- Dr. Pond, Dr. Chenong describes it as the legacy of COVID. Uh, we just have seconds left, but how is the state thinking about, I know that some people are el- eligible for disability and so on, but how to address and, and mitigate the effects of this legacy? Yeah, I think as uh, Dr. Chenong said, I think we're still kind of learning and ongoing evolving um, of this. But I think right now we've got some great collaborations with some of our partners, Um including UCSF, where Dr. Chenhong is, um, and the UC Health System in general, looking at long COVID, really trying to um, look at what is, you know, what are these long-term impacts? And uh, I think there's a lot to learn, and I I totally agree that this is the unfortunate legacy, um, but a lot of efforts happening with that. Well, Dr. Pond, Dr. Chenhong, Carly Severn, thank you for seeing us through this. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, The smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house. 
even in my super secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite- Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts.